to the KC City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. Why did Jesus use parables to teach? Well, parables painted a picture in the minds of the listeners, of those who sat and listened to Jesus, those that were drawn to him. And it communicated, these parables communicated to the human heart and to the human mind, God's deep eternal truths. God has deep eternal truths that he wants to reveal to us and he wants us to understand. But he comes at us in a special way. He talks to us in terms and in phrases and with pictures that you and I can understand. Both our hearts and our minds can understand. And these stories are everyday life sort of experiences. Everyday stories, scenes and settings from our own life. It could easily be stuff that we see in our own communities. But each of these stories reveals God's character and reveal also God's purpose. What is God doing in the earth? What is going on around us? And as we look at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin today, these two parables that were really an introduction to the parable of the prodigal son that Pastor Larry covered so beautifully last week. The goal is that in seeing God's character and purpose that we would be drawn to him and transformed in the relationship with him. That we would walk away with a compelling faith that is a witness to those who are around us. So let's set the scene a little bit. Let's take a look at the scribes uh, and the Pharisees in particular. These scribes and Pharisees were religionists. They were the religious people of the day. And they were in charge of the religious system, the traditions of the Jewish people. They were in charge of it. They were imbued with power. They were meant to be shepherds there for the good of the people. But they had turned into something else. And they saw Jesus, Messiah, the greatest teacher they had ever seen, the greatest miracle worker they had ever seen seen, the greatest prophet they had ever seen, Jesus the God-man, they saw him as a threat to their power and to their authority and to their system. They were going to protect their system from him. He was very threatening to them. His very presence, his teaching was a provocation to them. But the crowds had heard about Jesus. You know, we see these crowds that continually seem to gather around Jesus. And they're drawn to him because they've heard about the miracles. And they've heard about the teaching. And when he arrives in town or he's walking through a region, people begin to travel great distances just to go and to see him and hopefully hear him and perhaps see him perform a miracle. In these crowds, they were made up of not the religious people of the day as much as the people who were the people on the outskirts, the people unaccepted by the religious people of the day, the people who were declared to be unclean, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, you know, the notorious sinners, the ones in town who are famous for their sins, the town drunk, the town gangster, the town thug, the town prostitute. 
And as people would come around and he would begin to teach, you can just see them. They would begin to lean in to be able to hear what it is that he said. Well, these Pharisees and scribes would stand on the edge and they would try to sow dissent and stir up doubt uh, within the hearts of the people. They were very threatened by Jesus. And perhaps in Matthew 9, we see... Uh, we see what it is that Jesus is actually there to do. In verse 35, it says, Jesus went throughout the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, catch this, catch verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Hold on to that. Like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He's seeing all of these people just frantic and harassed and so helpless. They are truly a society without shepherds because the shepherds have turned into a religious group of people that are self-interested, more interested in their importance, their self-importance than in God's importance and the importance of God's truth and the importance of what God values. We are made in the image of God. These people that Jesus is looking on are made in the image of God. God has imbued them with intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. We're going to swap to a different microphone. Don't know what's... We're having a, a day today. Have we got me? We're good? Yep. All good. We are made in the image of God. We have the intrinsic imprint of God upon us, his value on us. He values us. Jesus is looking at crowds of people made in the image of God who are without a shepherd. They are lost. They are straying. They are wandering around. And Jesus declares them to be the very harvest. What is it that God's interested in doing in the earth? Well, it's a harvest. It's a harvest of souls. It's a harvest of the most valuable things to God, the parable of the lost coin. That coin actually, actually um, represents a day's wages. Let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. We come to our core passage today, uh, where verses 1 to 10, where we look at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Let's have a look at these. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now he's talking to the Pharisees here. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. And Jesus goes on again, speaking to these Pharisees who are criticizing him for sitting with the most lost amongst the sheep of the nation that they're meant to shepherd, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the notorious sinners. He continues to speak to them in the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Oh, Jesus has spoken directly and clearly to these Pharisees who were criticizing in the presence of all of these notorious sinners and in the presence of his disciples, let everybody know that God is seeking out that which is of lost, is lost, that which is of intrinsic value, whether it's the sheep or this coin, this drachma that represented a day's wages. I don't know what you earn in a day, but imagine you've lost it. Don't you go and you look for it until you find it. And when you find it, if you're a Christian, we tend to call one another up going, hey, I lost my wallet, but I prayed and I found it. And I was so happy to have it. And I just want to give God the glory for it. We want to praise just for the returning of the value that is in that wallet. Well, how much more the person made in the image of God. So what qualifies you as a sheep? What qualifies you as one of these lost sheep? Let's begin to look at this. Let's look at this dynamic of sin that we're dealing with in the world around us. Let's look at the context in which this criticism is made of Jesus by the Pharisees that he sat and ate with them. It's a specific criticism coming from their culture. In the Middle Eastern culture, you only eat with your friends and with your family. It is an intimate, almost romantic exchange to pull a piece of meat off of off of a, a of a roast to break bread with somebody and to partake of that to put it into your body is to be intimate with them you become one with them we took communion before what a beautiful thing we're instructed to do it until the lord returns to become one with him in communion, to be reminded that we are one with him in body and his blood has washed away our sins. That intimacy, we who were lost but are found, are invited into this relationship with God. He seeks to be intimate with us. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. Priority number one, seek and save the lost. 
This was unthinkable to those religious leaders, to their religious mindset. It was a threat to their very authority and their power structure. They believed Jesus was tainted by sitting and breaking bread with them, by being intimate in this way with them. They would declare him not to be a good man, but Jesus was more than a good man. Jesus is the God-man. God come to earth in human skin to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Isaiah 53, a prophetic verse about Jesus, about Messiah, some 700 years, given to Isaiah the prophet by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God revealing the future to Isaiah the prophet, revealing a future where Messiah would come some 700 years later, Talking about Messiah, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, iniquities. the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, pay attention to this. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Catch that. We all like sheep. God sees us made in his image of infinite moral value like sheep. We have a tendency to stray. I don't know if you've had any experience with sheep, but you know, sheep don't look for the opportunity to run through the gate whenever it's open. Sheep don't run, sheep stray. Sheep don't bolt, sheep wander away, a little here, a little there. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. We've all turned to our own way. Why did Jesus have to come and die? He had to come and die to make a way for you and I to come back. As he seeks and saves the lost, he not only wants to bring them back into the fold and back into fellowship under his protection and under his guidance, but he wants to lead them to an eternal pasture. Peter, the apostle Peter, interesting thing about all these disciples, all but one died of unnatural causes. Only one died of natural causes. All of the rest of them died a horrible death. You know, people will not give themselves over to die in a horrible way for a lie. They will not do it. One of the greatest stamps of the truth and the veracity of Scripture and of the Gospels in particular is the fact that these disciples would go and spend the rest of their lives carrying this message, knowing that it was going to cost them their lives in the end. And when it did, Peter, he was crucified in Asia. He refused to be crucified right side up. He said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was and insisted on being crucified upside down, and they obliged him. Church history records this, but Peter tells us in 1 Peter, again reiterating what is told to us in Isaiah 53. I'll just give you the overview. We've been invited into an opportunity to die to our sin, to die to it, to be permanently separated from the cost and the price of our sin. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what this selfless shepherd has done for us. 
that we can live unto righteousness, that we can live in a right way, that we can walk upright before God. God has returned us to an eternal state of right relationship with him in Christ Jesus. Even today in this fallen world, with our tendency to stray and to get it wrong, God invites us back. The door is eternally open. Jesus said, I am the door. Hallelujah. Oh, he's the door back into this right relationship. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> We're having fun today. Hallelujah. <laughs> Can I get a hallelujah from all the guys here? Hallelujah. You just heard the other four. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, we were going astray, and now we have come back. That's it. We've come back. We've come back to the shepherd. We've come back to the guardian of our souls. Hallelujah. Second Timothy. I want to give you a, a brief insight into our world. Let's bring this back to today. People still stray today. Maybe you're part of a Christian community. Maybe you're part of Casey City Church. And over this time of corona in your heart, you've kind of been well, kind of straying away from the flock a little bit, you know, wondering if the grass is, is greener somewhere else. Maybe you're part of another church and you're checking us out because you're straying away from that flock over there. Christians stray too. We do. We stray in little ways. We need a shepherd to guide, correct, and direct us. But those who are lost, who have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, are lost in the world, are just out there lost, groping for truth, trying to find meaning, wondering about what it all means. And if you're honest in your heart, you have questions about your ultimate destiny. Is there something beyond the grave and what might that be? Scripture tells us very clearly what that is, but let's look at these times in which we wander. Let's look at these times that seem custom made to facilitate our straying from truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine talking about today. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Don't know if you've been on social media lately, but the algorithms are designed to feed you what you're interested in. People wander into social media to find things out, to seek greener pastures and calmer waters and a little ray of sunshine in this, in this life, and they find themselves in an echo chamber. The longer you're there, the more it just parrots back to you what you already think and what you already have begun to believe. Oh, it's a, it's a trap in so many ways. It's useful. We're using it today, but it is also a very horrible trap. There's a very dark side to the internet and particularly social media because your itching ears can go and be satisfied on a moment by moment by moment basis, but they leave your heart eternally empty and unsatisfied. 
Can the world keep you distracted long enough for you to breathe your last breath? And then you find out what is at the end, what happens, what lies beyond death. Scripture reveals to us what lies beyond death. God does not desire that any should perish. Jesus came and expended great energy. It cost him absolutely everything to find this lost coin, to open up the door for these lost sheep, you and me. It cost him everything. Don't have any doubt about that. God's will is that you not perish, but you have a will too. And you too get to choose. Verse 4, they will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to the myths. You know, Jesus said of himself, I'm the truth, the life, and the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't a bunch of choices. It's not an a la carte way to heaven, to eternal life. It is not an a la carte choice as to how you want to receive salvation. When people in this day and age talk about my truth... There is only one truth, one truth that comes from God. When you start talking about an absolute truth, you are positing, putting forward the notion that there is an absolute truth that transcends any other worldly truth, any other opinion of any other person. When you do that, you are opening up the door for a lawgiver, the one truthful lawgiver. If there's an objective moral truth in this world, then it can only come from someone outside of this world providing it to us because every other truth in a lowercase t in this world is from this world and is subject to the opinions and the will of man. God has one will. God has spoken and everything that he speaks is truth. Everything that he does is justice. He's full of compassion and mercy. But in the same way that he addressed the Pharisees in clear and concise language, and he gets even clearer here in a minute. If you have questions about, oh, you know, I heard the Bible really doesn't say Jesus was the God man. You know, he was a nice bloke, you know, before I got radically saved one night by myself. I had a picture of Jesus, you know, long hair, you know, like a little, you know, thing from Hawaii with all the flowers wearing some Birkenstocks kind of rocking around going, mahalo, yeah, how you doing? You know, he was, he was my Jesus. Jesus created in my image, you know, Jesus who would, I was a drug addict, Jesus who would sit down and, and pack a few bowls with me, Jesus who would go down to the shop and buy some slabs of Budweiser and bring him back and we would hang out and have a barbecue together. Oh, Jesus was good at fellowship and he was great with food, but he was not going to do it the world's way. He was going to do it God's way. There's only one way. There's only one way. Jesus does not afford you the opportunity to put him in a menagerie with Muhammad, with Allah, with Buddha, he does not allow you to do that. He doesn't afford you that opportunity. He says he's it. John chapter 10. Let's take a look at uh, let's take a, a look at this truth. In the Gospel of John chapter 10, he is asked 
Jesus has been sitting in the temple courtyards and he's been teaching. And these religious guys come up and they have another crack at him. And they say, look, tell us the truth. If you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Well, he told them plainly on many occasions, and he had told them in great detail and referred them to Scripture, but now he gets blunt with it. Jesus answered them, I did tell you, but you did not believe. Hang on to that. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus declares in verse 36, I am God's Son. Jesus is saying, I'm the God-man. I am the Messiah. I am here to fulfill scripture. I am here on a mission to seek and to save the lost. I have good news for people. And you just simply haven't believed it. Believing is everything. There's no salvation without faith. A few weeks ago, I shared uh, from scripture that, um, that without faith, it's impossible to please God it's absolutely impossible to please God. But with faith, it is not only possible to please God, it's possible to be radically transformed. If you will put your faith in the one and only Son of God, who came and lived a sinless life, willingly went to the cross, was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day was raised back to life because he had committed no wrong. He was completely innocent. Jesus, who had taken on the sins of all of us, you and I, who have gone astray, who took all of it and paid the price for all of it, who was raised back to life, and he was seen by hundreds. He was constantly popping in in this transformed body, this resurrection body, still bearing the scars, popped into the fellowship. Scripture says that he inhabits the praises of his people. I tell you what, he showed up today when we showed up here, even in the middle of everything we've been having with technical issues, the message is still the same. Hallelujah. Amen. Still the same. And you know, by faith, you get this transformation. You, begin, you get this assurance that arrives on the inside of you, on the inside of you, on the inside of you that changes everything. It changes your view of the world. It changes your view of the lost who are out in the world, these other lost sheep made in the image of God who are just wandering around into this and that, and they're in danger at every turn. They are victims. They are the prey of, of wolves and jackals. In verse 36 of Hebrews 11, it says, instead, when you're transformed, you begin longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
You know, when life gets difficult down here, it is a comfort to know that I'm not really fully a citizen of here. I care about down here. I do all that I can down here because I love God. It motivates me to do radical things for God on behalf of those who are lost, on behalf of those who are hurting. But in my heart, I am a citizen. I'm just passing through, and I want to take as many with me as I can. God says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed of us. You know, God not being ashamed of you changes things. When your shame is washed away and you're transformed by this relationship with God, by having been found by God, it changes things. Christians are the most persecuted and executed people today as this message goes out on the face of the earth. We are persecuted almost on a global scale. It's increasing all the more. We're told that it will. The message has gone out, but people don't like it. There's a gentleman named Richard Wombrandt. You can check out uh, Richard Wombrandt online. W-A-R-M-B-R-A-N-T started something called Voice of the Martyrs. The reason that he started it was because he had lived under the communist in the early Soviet Union. He was a Romanian scientist, a biologist, and uh, he was pulled in. Not Richard Warmbrandt wasn't, but he met in the gulag. Richard was a, sorry, he was a, a Christian. He was a pastor who refused to put his stamp of approval on communism. As a matter of fact, he declared communism and Christianity are incompatible, and they threw him in prison for it, as they did with everyone who disagreed. And after he'd been there a few years, this scientist was dragged in there, this biologist. He was a specialist on sheep, and Richard ran into him in the gulag And this specialist on sheep said the reason that he was thrown in prison was because the Communist Party had pulled in all the scientists and said, we need to explain that God does not exist. We want to use science to do it. We're going to use evolution to do that. So what can you contribute to it? And this scientist stood up and he spoke for truth. He said, I'm a specialist in sheep. And if we're going to use evolution to disprove the existence of a creator and of God, then I have a problem. Because sheep cannot exist for thousands of years waiting for their shepherds to be evolved and formed. They are utterly reliant on their shepherds in every way. And he shared the reasons why. One of the reasons that really stuck out to me today was that shepherds would take oil and put it on the head of the sheep. They would anoint their head with oil and they would massage that oil into the head and to the scalp of the sheep and that protected them from the ticks. The tick would bite them and then their larvae would go in and poison their blood. And if they bored into the brain, then they would cause insanity in these sheep. How, how apt is that? The shepherd anointing the head of the sheep to protect their life source in their blood and to actually protect their sanity, their very ability to think straight. But Richard Wombrandt and the scientists were thrown in prison. 
for their beliefs, for their stand for truth. We live in a time like that today. Increasingly, people have no tolerance for truth. They've got itching ears. They only want to hear what they want to hear. Tell me that my truth is right, or at least tell me that you're not going to object to it. You need to put your stamp of approval on it. Christians are being invited to do that in ways that we've never before seen in modern history. But we've just got to say no to it. There's only one truth. I want to take a look at another prophetic book as we begin to wrap up. It's in Ezekiel. We don't need to pop the scriptures up there. I'm just going to take you on a flyover, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 6. We see a description of a selfish shepherd, the selfish shepherds, and the result that that has on shepherdless sheep. It says to us in verses 1 to 4 of Ezekiel 34, you can look it up later, that these selfish shepherds are only interested in themselves, what they can consume, what they can get out of the sheep. They want to eat the fat that comes from the milk. They want to clothe themselves in the wool, make nice fine clothes, and then they want to just slaughter the sheep so they can have a nice roast in the evening. They do not care for these sheep. Not only do they not care, but they rule these sheep harshly and brutally. In the end, they are no shepherds at all. What does that do to the shepherdless sheep? In verses 5 and 6, we see that they're scattered. They become victims, prey of every predator, a victim of everything. They wander. They wander into the mountains, in the high hills. What are they doing? Well, they're seeking grass. They're seeking water. They're seeking shelter. But they're going to the very place of danger. You know, in the high country of Victoria, we have sheep alerts. <laughs> if you live in the high country of Victoria, you can be watching the evening weather and there'll be a sheep alert. Forget about a storm alert. Tonight, it's going to get wet and cold and your sheep might freeze. You need to go and do something about it. These sheep wander into these high places and they become vulnerable to the very weather, just to the very ability to just exist, to just breathe. It says that they are scattered over the whole earth. Hang on to that. And the tragedy about these lost sheep, they end up lost. The tragedy is not so much that they're lost, but the fact that no one is looking for them. They are shepherdless. There is no one who knows they're missing. No one in this life who realizes how lost they are, how in danger they are. There is no one looking for them. But now I want to take this negative image of this, um, this selfish shepherd, and I want to pass the light of God's word. Everything we've been talking about, I want to pass it through there and we can invert this image and get the image of the shepherd, how he was meant to be, the selfless shepherd. And we get a good picture of our savior, Jesus Christ. We said at the beginning, it's all about Jesus. It's all about you, Lord. If we pass the light back through this negative image, what pops out is a shepherd who is selfless, who seeks out the lost, who strengthens the weak ones when he finds them, who heals the sick when he finds them, who binds up the injured when he finds them, and who picks up and carries the strays back to the fold to watch over and care for them and to protect them. Remember back in Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus looked at the crowds. He was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The world is filled with sheep 
who have no shepherds, many of them wander in and out of the revolving door of church fellowships, constantly wandering, searching for greener pastures. It's sad. And some have never thought of the idea of a shepherd. Philippians 2 tells us why Jesus, this God-man, this selfless shepherd, is able to help us, able to save. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, In relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This was Jesus' mindset. These are the thoughts of our shepherd, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And going on in verse 9, this is where we get down to it. Because he was willing to do that, because he was willing to do that for us, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 